Good morning. Grace to you and peace. You probably needed extra of both of those getting here today. Um, Good job getting here through the beta breakers. I still want to put together a first SF team to run in beta breakers. We can call it Baptist beta breakers with clothes on though. I promise. I really do want, I've said it for five years, so I need to pull on my runners. I I don't see Andrew in here or young, uh, Catherine, Brian, uh, we need to pull some runners together and put together a team. I think that would be fun. And as long as I can get the week off, Ryan. All right. We are um, in our third week in First Thessalonians. The last two weeks, as we really got through the introduction to this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, have been pretty personal. We've taken Paul's commendations, his words of affirmation that he sends to this church at Thessalonica, this young church. He, we've taken those words of commendation And we have used the commendations that Paul makes to this church and allowed them, hopefully, to shine a light on our own lives as to how we as Christ followers in San Francisco in 2018 are living. Today we take sort of a different turn. Paul talks in this text for today, which is going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2, really about trustworthy spiritual leadership and I think this, is, this isn't real emotional. This doesn't uh, just tug at your heartstrings. Um, this is a very good way. If you weren't already really excited that Ryan's coming back next week, this sermon will get you there. This is not a touchy-feely topic. But I think it's so important for us to think about because we live in a world where the label Christian where it's calling something a church or even denominational um, names and and the whole idea of denominations, those, those things don't mean anything in and of themselves anymore. And so we have to be vigilant. I think we could talk a lot about our need uh, for a, a leadership revival in our culture and in our world and in our secular world. And it's true that poor secular, secular leadership um, causes a lot of bad things to happen. A lot of Bad policy can come out of earthly spiritual leadership, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking about spiritual leadership because poor spiritual leadership doesn't just impact the world we live in today. It can have eternal consequences. In some ways, I think the last two weeks have shined a light on how all of us are living our lives. Today shines a light on those of us who lead within the church. And it is a light for also to to see more clearly the leadership of others in your life or also to see more clearly your own leadership. And when we shine a light on leadership, it has the potential to expose things. It can expose false prophets. It can expose false shepherds. It can expose wolves in sheep's clothing. So let's pray and let's jump in to see what Paul has to say to us in chapter two of this letter this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for every bit of your word is useful for us. God, even when it doesn't uh, touch our emotions necessarily, God, I'm thankful that you have designed every bit of your word to be important to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, and to train us. God, I pray you would soften our hearts today to hear your heart from your word. God, I pray that you would 
spur in us through your Holy Spirit discernment as we follow and as we lead. God, I'm thankful that every person in this room is here on purpose this morning. There's not one person here by chance. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear what you would have for each of us today. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a really long text today. If you want to go ahead and start turning there. I'm not going to read it all together. I really believe Paul has broken this up for us into really three components of spiritual leadership. I'm going to read each section before I talk about each part. But if you want to turn there, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, 1 Thessalonians is after Colossians. If you see Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, keep going. If you get to Hebrews or Philemon, go back. The T-books are all lumped together. 1 Thessalonians is the first T-book. I have a lot of points for you today. So if you are a note taker, I apologize. Start wiggling your fingers. We have really three things here that Paul is going to show us about leadership. But I want to give you a little background about why he jumps into this. This is Paul making a defense of his leadership, essentially. And it's a little bit of a a switch abruptly from where he started this letter. I mentioned the last two weeks that there were many people opposed to Christianity's um, impact of, in Thessalonica. Opposition came from all sides. It came from the Roman government. It came from the secular, non-religious Thessalonians. And it came from the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica. In fact, in Acts 17, which if you read Acts 17, you read the story of, of Paul's first visit uh, to Thessalonica. Thessalonica and the introduction of Christianity there, we read in that chapter that Paul was essentially run out. He was pushed out of Thessalonica by the Jewish leaders. And then he leaves, but the, Jew, the, the Christians, the new Christians in Thessalonica, continue to be challenged in their new faith. And a large part of the way their new faith was challenged was by slanderous comments that were being made about Paul and his team. Probably most of these comments were coming from the Jewish leaders based on what Paul says later on in our text. The opposition felt that if they could discredit the messengers of Christianity, then perhaps they could get the people to turn away from the message of Christianity. And so Paul, I have to imagine he hated having to do this to defend himself, but he knew that it was important um, for the sake of the truth The truth that we read about last week had radically changed and saved the Thessalonian Christians. They were changed and saved in a very real way. But also the truth that he knew needed to keep going out for the salvation of many more. When we talk about leadership, we have to understand that God God makes it very clear in his word that God knows that there is a great risk today as, as way back since the beginning of the Old Testament. There is a great risk of false teachers, false or dangerous leaders, false prophets. Paul defends himself in our text today, but many other places in the New Testament, Paul issues very grave warnings about the dangers of false teachers. And we live in a world today where religious leaders use their pulpits for all kinds of non-God focused things. They use their pulpits for political power and gain on both sides of the political fence. They use the gospel sometimes to, as a means to become incredibly wealthy. They use their position as a means to gain power over their people or even to lure people into the sin under a false 
form of grace. We see pastors and church leaders who manipulate and water down scripture to make it more appealing to the masses. We see pastors and church leaders who interpret scripture in a way to fit their own experiences or to fit the experiences of the people that they are leading in order to accommodate more people like them. Right here in San Francisco, I drive by a church every day on my way to work that offers goddess worship. And there was another church in our city that recently had a publicized event that they called a Beyonce mass. It's really not funny. The pop singer. Other churches routinely, we see more and more reject the authority of scripture. They reject the exclusivity of Christ. They reject a, a scriptural understanding of marriage and of sexuality and even the reality of heaven and hell. And each of these have the potential to lead people down a path toward broken fellowship with God at best and a false eternal security at worst. And any of the types of leaders that lead those places could find their way in here, either on the staff or as an influential part of this body. And you may think, well, that would never happen here. But no one comes into the church and introduces themselves as, hi, I'm Mike. I'm a narcissistic, power-hungry heretic. And some of them are not even self-aware enough to know those things about themselves. But we have to be vigilant. And Paul's defense of his own ministry here in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians gives us great tools to assess the leaders among us. Or for you to assess the leaders in the next church that God make. We live in a transient city. You may be somewhere else next year. Gives you the tools to assess the leaders in the next church to where God may lead you. But it also gives us, those of us who lead, and really all of us lead in some way or another. It gives us tools to assess our own leadership. Paul shows us godly leadership in this text really in three different ways. He shows it from the perspective of our integrity as leaders, from our actions as leaders, and from the results of our leadership. So the first section that we're going to do is from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 6. This text will be on the screen, if you will read it with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 6. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So right off the bat in this section, Paul reminds them that when Paul and his team came to Thessalonica, things happened. Last week in our passage, we saw him, we saw Paul remind the Thessalonians that their salvation was real. Their lives were changed. What happened when Paul was there even survived Paul's absence when they were put under such pressure from the Jewish leaders. 
They still, they, they, there was something very real and very tangible and very life-changing that happened with the Thessalonians. Paul says, our coming to you, our ministry to you is not in vain. And then Paul defends his integrity. And in the process of this defense, he gives several attributes for us to look for in godly leaders. Number one, godly leaders are willing to suffer for the sake of the message. He says in verse two, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul reminds them that his ministry did not lead to personal gain or personal comfort or personal riches. His ministry led to suffering. As a leader in the church, as a leader who is led from God's word to lead the church, it is impossible to ignore what God's word says. We will share in Christ's sufferings. We will sh- and that means that we will share, that we will suffer because of our association with Christ. A true called Christian leader cannot preach or lead or teach through God's word, through verses like 1 Peter 4.13, which encourages the body of Christ to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. A godly Christian leader or teacher or preacher cannot teach through those kind of passages without being willing to suffer him or herself. Many leaders will change their message or they will actually work hard to prevent personal suffering as they live out their calling. Be wary of that sort of leader. The second thing we see in this from Paul is that number two, godly leaders know that it is God who empowers and allows them to lead. Verse two, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Paul is not coming in here saying, boy, it's lucky for you that we were so brave and we were so bold. He says he was able to remain bold in the face of suffering because God gave him the boldness to preach the gospel of God. This is not some sort of spiritual platitude here. Oh, oh, it's just all, all God. I remember my mentor when I first started speaking and I went to him because he was a speaker and teacher and I went to him and I said, I don't know how to respond when somebody compliments me or somebody thanks me or somebody says something moved them. And he said, you know what? You know where that came from. He said, just say thank you. He said, don't say it was all God because it probably wasn't that good. <laughs> That's not what Paul is doing here. It was all God. Paul is, is, Speaking what we know of his heart, we see it in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Christ empowers me to live the life that I live in faith. The truth is that it is easy to start out in leadership dependent of God, but it's also just as easy to slip into a place where you start to think, I got this. And it begins to be about you. Look for leaders who are real. Be wary of leaders who always do everything right, who never struggle with anything, or who are quick to spout their achievement, but never acknowledge their failures. Humility recognizes as a leader that we do nothing absent God's power in our lives as we lead. The third thing we see, godly leaders speak to please God, not to please people. For our appeal, verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is our witness. The desire for success in many leaders will often cause leaders to try very hard to make people like them. To make people like their message. Because they think, if I do that, more people will follow and I will have earthly success. I think this is huge in our Christian culture today. Changing our message to please the culture. It is one thing to understand the culture and to seek to understand the culture with the hope of communicating the truth so that the culture will hear it. It is another thing to understand culture and then modify our truth to avoid offending the culture. Godly leaders understand that the word can be offensive. It says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, the message of the cross is the stench of death to those who are perishing. Godly pastors teach the whole truth of God's word, even the parts that are hard, even the parts that go flat against current cultural thought or current cultural ideology. When I, many of you know, Stephanie and I went through a separation. I left her to pursue a life that was decidedly outside of God's word. And I looked for a church that would welcome me in the sin that I I was following. I wanted it to be okay with God. And I found a church like that. And I went to this church and we sang songs and we prayed and they opened the Bible. But I began to notice something. I thought this church would affirm me and make me feel good. But I felt this strange absence We prayed the Lord's Prayer and we prayed to our sovereign. And I asked about it and said, well, we don't like to think of God as a man or as a father. And I thought, well, but that's what God's word says. How how can we just change that? And then they began to just pull verses out of the Bible, never studying a text, pulling verses. And they were always verses that made you feel good. And even in my rebellion and in my sin and in my brokenness. I knew something was wrong in that place. Jeremiah lamented in the book of Jeremiah about false teachers. He said, they say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And he said, they heal the wounds of God's people superficially. Just trying to make everything feel better. If you are in a church where no one ever challenges you, Or where the leaders skip over the hard parts of God's word. Be wary. Number four, godly leaders are not greedy for money. Verse five. We didn't come with words of flattery, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Now here in San Francisco, you might think, and I thought this when I first read this. I find it hard to comprehend that any pastor would come to San Francisco out of a desire for financial gain. We could be financially in a better position almost anywhere else in this country. But at the same time, I realize many of us struggle with greed in different ways and it manifests in different ways. It manifests in a lack of generosity. It manifests in being very tight with money or being very worried or consumed with what we have. It's true in many places that that many, many ministries that we see across our country that greed is just the desire for masses of money, your kind of greed, is a huge motivator. We have all heard all of those kinds of stories. But I think for us, we need to look, look in a different way. Are our leaders generous? 
Are our leaders, when they call us to be financially sacrificial, are they financially sacrificial? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.3 that overseers or elders or pastors, another way to say that, must not be lovers of money. Be wary of greedy leaders. Number five, godly leaders should seek God's glory and not their own. Verse six, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles for Christ. Godly leaders deflect the spotlight off of themselves and always put the spotlight on Jesus. We meet at 7.30 on Sunday mornings to pray. We always pray that what happens here would make much of Jesus. Not that it would make much of our soloists, or our worship leader, or the pastor, or anybody else, or any other person that is recognized or or spoken of or has the spotlight in our service. We see our purpose, first and foremost, as being about God's glory, especially in our Sunday morning gathering. We never want to supplant God's glory with our own or with anyone else's, certainly not Beyonce's. We want God alone to be glorified in this place. And I encourage you, look as you are following spiritual leaders, look for a focus on God's glory. Never a focus on man's glory. Certainly never a focus on the leader's glory. I've been reading again about Jim Jones. He was the head of the People's Temple, a cult that rose to prominence here in San Francisco in the 70s. That cult was all about Jim Jones. He was the God of the people who followed him. They worshiped him. And he ended up leading a thousand of them to kill themselves with poisoned Kool-Aid for him. That is a big dramatic picture of self-glorification. But it can be just as dangerous in different ways, even in much smaller forms. Look for signs of that. I appreciate this very much about Ryan, about our leader He does not set himself up as our king, except for how he kind of likes us to bow slightly before we approach his desk. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. I, I really do appreciate that about him. He does not want to be the guy. He does not want to supplant Jesus in any of our lives. But for us, as the people who follow him in this place, we have to be careful that we don't bestow that sort of glory or honor on him. Godly leaders seek only God's glory, not their own. The next section that we see in this passage is is, um, verses 7 through 12. Paul shifts from these sort of character identifications of himself, character and integrity observations, to action characteristics. How do godly, trustworthy leaders carry out their ministry? Starting in verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you... We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God 
who calls you into his kingdom, his own kingdom and glory. Paul here gives us two things to look for in how Christian leaders interact with the body of Christ. He says, number one, that good leaders should be nurturing like a mother and exhorting like a father. To exhort, if you don't know that word, it means to urge or to advise or to caution or to call forth. So I think that some of us, no matter our gender, are more naturally nurturing and some of us are more naturally exhorting. So it may be clear to you that I am a more natural exhorter. And I, but I do know other male leaders in this body who are more naturally nurturing. I know female leaders in this body who are more naturally nurturing. But I also know female leaders in this body who are more natural exhorters. This is not so much about gender or about roles, because at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that every spiritual leader, no matter their natural tendencies, is called to be both. Both tender and kind and affectionate and self-sacrificing and to exhort, challenge, call out. Times I have to work really for someone like me, I have to remember and at times I have to work really hard at being more kind, more tender, more gentle. And some of you have called me out on that. And I appreciate that, even though it's hard. And I hope in hearing that, that I've made progress in that way. But for other leaders, they will have to remember that at times they must be bold. They must confront. They must be assertive. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that elders or overseers, the leaders in the church, must be, among many other things, both gentle and hospitable. But in his second letter to Timothy, Paul tells him, be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. Be ready to reprove and rebuke and exhort, but always with patience. A godly leader both nurtures and exhorts. The second thing he says here, he says... Godly leaders should be both nurturing and exhorting, but he says godly leaders should not be a burden on the people. I have been in a church before where some of the leadership not only did not give to the body, but where they sucked the life out of the body by their lack of a good work ethic or their constant self-absorption. Leaders should lead in a way that life is imparted to the body, not sucked out of it. Look for godly leaders who are not lazy and whose conduct is God-honoring and is selfless. That doesn't mean that leaders are not at times in need. Leaders do have needs. And we as leaders, all of the leaders in this body are also a part of this family. There will be times where you rally around a leader in this body who is in need. But where you need to be wary is when a leader always seems to pull everything back on them. Leaders lead primarily in how they represent servanthood to the people they are leading. It doesn't mean that leaders do all the work of ministry. Actually, quite the contrary. Ephesians 4.12 says, Our job as leaders in this church is to equip you for works of ministry. But I cannot equip you. A leader cannot equip others to lives of ministry and lives of service if everyone is constantly having to serve the leader. Finally, our last section in this passage, which is in verse 13 through 16. Paul reminds the Thessalonians in this 
um, section that leaders must be assessed, assessed in some ways by the results of their leadership. They should be assessed by their followers. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Okay, we do see a little bit of Paul's frustration with the Jews in this section, clearly. But what he's really doing, I think, is he's pointing out that there's something to be said about the result of their leadership that can affirm the godliness of the leadership. Paul thanks the God that the Thessalonians received the word of God. They didn't receive it as the word of men. They received it as the word of God. And that the work that they received is at work in them as they imitated Christ for the other churches and as they suffered for Jesus' sake. In our passage last week, Paul also talked about how they were, how other people began to imitate the Thessalonians, that they were out there sharing their faith. From this, we see that a, a, a way to assess leadership is to look at the followers of that leadership. Look for this. Number one, look for followers who are willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. Are the people that are following these leaders willing to suffer? Assuming that the leaders are suffering, willing to suffer themselves. On the flip side of that, sometimes it's easier to see these things in the negative. If a church seems to be hiding from the culture... If a church seems to be watering down their message to avoid any suffering or any unpleasantness, be wary. Look for followers who imitate Christ in their lives. On the flip side of that, if a church, either as an organization or the people of the church, if they look completely like the culture that surrounds it, if they exhibit no biblical distinctives, be wary of that place. Number three, look for followers who take the message out and share it in their world. On the flip side, if the church seems hunkered down like a fortress, hunkered down to escape the world, if it's completely inward focused, or if it is really designed as this place just to escape from the world, rather than as a training ground to reach the world with Christ, be wary. These lists that Paul gives us in this section are not exclusive lists. There is a lot of scriptural real estate occupied by counsel in how to lead and in how to follow. Titus and 1 Timothy give us great lists of characteristics of godly leaders. It shows us that leading is hard work. I was very challenged personally in my own leadership by this passage this week. But I also have to remember that we as leaders, all of us who lead, we are also human. And our humanity can creep into our leadership. Many leaders, probably most leaders, especially in the church, start out well-intentioned. But then they stray. And that is why for everyone who is under, under someone's leadership, you have to realize it's also hard work to follow leaders as well. 
To follow means that, it means that you learn what it means to be submissive to leadership, but also to be discerning. And it requires that you speak up when you see something that is outside these or other biblical descriptions of good spiritual leadership. Good spiritual leadership is never dictatorial. 1 Peter 5.13 says that pastors should exercise oversight, but not be domineering over those in their charge and should be examples to the flock. There should always, at the end of the day, be a level of mutuality in how a church is led. Our greatest desire as your church leaders, I speak, I believe, for our staff and for our lay leadership is that our labors in leading would not be in vain here, just like Paul was so blessed that his labors were not in vain. We are not here to make ourselves indispensable. We are here to teach you and lead you in order that from this church, the name of the Lord would be proclaimed by you for you to share the amazing message of the gospel to our city and beyond, to see sinners saved for now and for eternity. Our desire is for you to lead people to love and live for Jesus. But I don't want this just to be about the people who lead you. There is a personal side to this whole thing because every one of you leads in some way. It's why we call our volunteers servant leaders instead of volunteers. You lead even when you serve. And as a Christ follower, you exercise spiritual leadership in this place, in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your communities. And I, you need to look at this and go, do these characteristics describe me? Are you willing to do the things that you lead or tell others to do? For those of you who are parents, think about this in the context of your kids. Do you rest in God's power to lead? Or do you strive and seek to prove something of your own value? Is your life about pleasing God or pleasing man? Are you generous and content with what you have? Do you seek to glorify God with your life? Are you kind and bold? Or are you over needy, always making sure that everything ends up being about you? Are people better because of your leadership in their lives? The calling to lead people to love and live for Jesus is all of our calling. And while we are assessing others' leadership over us, because it's true, every one of us in this room is, is under someone else's leadership, we should also be looking at ourselves. I was thinking about it this way. Think about it like this. You could or should be a part of every person in your life's spiritual journey. How would the people you lead assess you? Is your leadership defensible? And I want to say something just as one of your pastors. We know that God has set a very high standard for us. We know from Hebrews 13, 17 that we will be called to give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to us. In James 3, 1, it says that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus said that it would be better for those of us who lead to be thrown into the ocean with a millstone, a very heavy stone that would send us right to the bottom. It would be better for us who lead to be thrown into the ocean with a millstone around our necks than to cause or lead someone else to sin. 
Colossians 1.28 and Ephesians 4.13 give us a mandate of sorts. Say that we are called to present everyone mature in Christ. We are called to proclaim Christ. We are called to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. With a goal toward maturity in Christ and the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We are to speak truth in love so that you all will build this body up in love. We would never want to do anything to hurt this body or to derail your process of maturity. And so we say that if you have concerns, we want you to share them with us. And as a body, as we assess the spiritual leadership that we are under, we assess our own leadership. Let's seek grace and peace together. Grace for a well-timed help and the peace that passes understanding. Let's seek that together as a unified body As we desire to carry out our mission to lead people to love and live for Jesus.